if the prevailing social vision is that people are depraved because they're deprived, or that the system is rigged, we are teaching individuals that the only remaining option is to not participate or to destroy the system. Right. So the prevailing social vision very much affects the economic actors. It's an incentives question. We're putting yes. horrible incentives in front of people. Yes. What do I even do with the fact if I believe the prevailing social vision that you know my right. race is an all determining characteristic, or that the system is rigged? What do I even do with that? Yeah. I mean, one of the options is I destroy and watch this. He's actually, so actually just explained why all these measures of civilization got worse after the sixties. Because we went to this all-inclusiveness. You're a murderer. It's okay. It's because you were disadvantaged. Yeah. Right? Ignoring the complex realities that drive that. And one of the statistics he repeats multiple times in this book is that a majority of people in prisons are from single-parent households. Nothing right. to do with race. Nothing to do with wealth or income. If we have a bad mental model as a society, we're going to get poor participation or lack of participation. Worse. Like, that's a great way to put it. Bad ideas cause... put people to the guillotine like that that's marxism in a nutshell hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. 
or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Anish Carve, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. It's good to be back. So this series uh, is becoming quite popular. I'm very happy to see that. Um, we're going to continue our journey into Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. And uh, yeah, a lot of the feedback I've been getting online is that this has been an introductory piece for people to Thomas Sowell's work, as this is for me, right? You recommended this book. This is the first book of his that I've read. Um, and today we're going into chapter six, which is titled Social Visions and Human Consequences. Uh, where should we begin today? I want to start with uh, one of the late in the school of Austrian economics, so well after Mises, the Schindler quote that Sowell opens the chapter with. And he says, they went to work with unsurpassable efficiency, full employment, a maximum of resulting output, and general well-being ought to have been the consequence. It is true that instead we find misery, shame, and at the end of it all, a stream of blood. But that was a chance coincidence. And what Sowell is showing here is that the invincible fallacy uh, has existed long before since he coined the term. And this chapter is really all about not just the language, the law and the money and the facts that happen in society, but what the underlying vision for society is. And if that underlying vision is corrupt or incorrect, then no matter how many times empirical evidence and logic contradict that vision, people will come back and try the same thing again. Mm-hmm. And the classic popular example of this is not real socialism. And the reason that we continue to hear, well, that wasn't real socialism. And we get this dodge that, okay, Venezuela wasn't real socialism. The USSR wasn't real socialism. Cuba wasn't real socialism. Or Cuba was poor because the United States refused to trade with them and not because they were communist. The reason we get these continued dodges is that uh, there's a, a logical and visional, if that's a word, failing at the root of the very mental model mm-hmm. that people are using to ass- assess the world. And, you know, I've read this book several times now and rereading this chapter today, I got a taste that that's really what soul is going after is that vision underlies society. And if we don't have the right vision, if we have the wrong vision, we're going to keep making the wrong laws. We're going to keep making the wrong economic policies. Yeah, it's. It's a great point. Uh, um, he makes the point later in the chapter that vision is necessary, right? It's it's what we do. We we come up with a theory, as we've talked about earlier in the series. You develop a, a theory or hypothesis, and then you test it, right, empirically against uh, reality to see how well it holds up. But the danger comes when you start taking that social vision at face value or you, or maybe there's a, a misunderstanding that it's intended to be tested, not just, um, accepted. Right. And, and that really seems to be the, the danger of, of demagoguery and, and other, um, I guess, deceits, you would say. He says that we've talked in past episodes about physics envy, and we know that Keynes himself was a great admirer of Newton and you know, what's, there's a lot to admire about Newton is that, Hey, I'm able to codify in relatively simple mathematical terms, the way that the universe actually works. 
Well, the abuse that took place or the physics envy that then took place is the e economic social sciences, which had, you know, very much lesser results from the standpoint of things that were quantitative and repeatable. Keynes said, well, the economy is like a balloon. You can heat it, it expands, it contracts. Mm -hmm. And what was he doing? He was invoking this idea that the economy, in spite of being a blood and guts living complex system, was just a model that central bankers could inflate and deflate mm -hmm. at will. And yeah. Sol has a great way of tying that up. And what he says is that social visions, of which mm -hmm. Keynes's monetary theory is one, believe it or not, mm -hmm. because it was about the idea that the wealth would hoard or concentrate if there wasn't some kind of forced redistribution through inflation. Mm -hmm. Social visions have been often analogized to visions in science, but the elastic words, this is a key thing. Remember, we talked about semantic mm -hmm. inflation. Mm -hmm. The elastic words used to describe statistics in what are called the quote-unquote social sciences can make even accurate numbers misleading. Mm. So why are the Austrians so careful about their terms? Because I think you've said it before in this series, bad terms, bad thinking. Mm -hmm. And these social sciences terms, even if they, this is called scientism, even if they mm. use real numbers, well, I mean, the word income, this is an income number, but that, never, that word unfortunately doesn't mean anything if right. you're using household income instead of per capita income. Yeah, he goes on here saying like words such as income could be capital gains or act, active income, let's say, or education, whether it's measured by years of schooling rather than by amount, kind, or quality of learning that takes place. So it's this, I mean, the way I conceive this is as a matter of resolution, right? You're, you're either in a lower or higher resolution depiction of reality. And when you, when you use words that are ambiguous, you, you get the bad terms, bad thinking problem, right? When you say something like, oh, we need more education. Like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean more years of education? Does that mean a different type of education, a different quality? Um, and so it's, we're undermining our very capacity for critical thinking when we don't um, seek to, to meet out the ambiguity in our, our terminology, whether it's, whether it's numbers or words. You know, an, uh, an old CEO that I work for, you say, if you measure it, you must improve. And mm -hmm. this is the kind of ludic or fallacious measures of central planners. I'll give you an example. So if you see, if you see that it happens that people who are more educated have better outcomes in society, then you say, well, we'll just apply more education to them. Mm -hmm. But Sol goes into in this chapter, what he shows is that, you know, four years spent in education in the inner city is in no way equivalent to the four years spent in education in a more affluent neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And he goes through very specific differences there. And he says, like, you know, kids growing up in the latter are going to hear more words per minute. And education is actually a proxy. It's a substitute for what you actually learn. Education doesn't mean anything. You can sit in a classroom, this is a really important point, for eight hours a day, mm -hmm. but if there's another disruptive individual in that classroom, you're not learning anything, and therefore that time can't even be counted as education. Right. And one of the paradoxes that Sowell goes into in this chapter, you know, we are just talking about in the warm-up to the episode how right around the 1960s there was a precipitous turn where mm -hmm. things like um, rates of venereal disease, actually inequality amongst African-Americans and whites, uh, the murder rate, uh, the single motherhood rate, these things mm -hmm. took a U-turn and we started to do a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And what he shows, let's just take an example, let's x-ray this, this talk of education. So, okay, what does education mean? Well, if you're a central planner, it means, well, people just need to be sitting in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that before the new social vision of the 60s, which we'll get into, kind of took hold, 
the classrooms themselves, we looked at an example in this series earlier, Dunbar High School, the individuals are able to discriminate, who, not based on race, who wants to be here, who is not disruptive, and who can be in this class, and they had better outcomes. Now watch this. The prevailing social vision of the 60s comes along and says, well, there shouldn't be classes, and we're seeing this today with critical race theory. They're literally mm -hmm. abolishing honors programs in the name of equality. Okay, <laughs> What they're going to actually end up doing is hurting economically disadvantaged individuals. We're going to talk mm -hmm. about that in just a second. But what that meant was, hey, put everyone, quote unquote, everyone in a classroom for eight hours, is that the disruptive individuals who were formerly kicked out of the classroom were now allowed into the classroom. And as a result of this averaging behavior of central planners, now instead of some people learning and some people just becoming delinquent and leaving school, nobody's learning. Yeah. Because one individual who doesn't want to be there, who shouldn't be there normally by their qualifications, mm -hmm. is now destroying the environment for everyone else. And so this is a great example of where in attempting to be diverse and inclusive, what we actually did was harm everyone equally. Mm -hmm, right. And we took away, it's an attack on the agency of the individual. Because again, Dunbar High School, you know, just very quick re recap there. So 70 to 80 years of African-American achievements, uh, sending African-American students to the best colleges in the land, uh, producing doctors, producing lawyers, when as a result of the well-intentioned forced integration policies of the 60s, they were forced to take all students, their outcomes were destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so this is this ironic thing where uh, from the in, from the fatal conceit, states think that they have to create all order, but they also think wherever there's order from the invincible fallacy that they need to fix it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is this kind of ratchet of statism that like, oh, okay, well, if there's order that we don't like, interfere. If there's not order, we do need to interfere. And there's just no end to that. Sorry for a long, long monologue there. But no, there, there's a lot of no, 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 that's, it's really good. And I, <laughs> a guy I worked with a long time ago talked about the moldy bread theory, you know, like if you just have one bad, in this case, he was a leader of an organization. He's saying, if you have one bad employee, that's really disruptive and not contributing in whatever way, not vibing with the rest of the group, that that can contaminate the entire group. And it's kind of the same thing with students, right? If you, you could have 20 all-star students, you put one kid in there that's super disruptive, doesn't want to be there, is acting violently towards teachers or students. I mean, that can ruin the entire possibility of anyone learning in that environment. So, right. it, the, the, and then the state, like you said, it's trying to eliminate this volatility, I guess, by kind of forcing everyone into one template. And in, in doing that, I mean, ostensibly at least for well-intentioned, good intentions, um, it actually ends up instilling this homogeneity where it's just like, you've ruined everyone's educational experience because you tried to get the one kid that didn't want to be there to force fit into the group. Um, and it, it just, yeah, again, it's back to this whole idea of intervening only where absolutely necessary. Whereas this, the statist approach seems to be like intervention is the measure of first response where it should be the measure of, of last response, something like that. And what's being attacked here is is self-sorting, right? So that's so brilliantly calls this self-sorting, which is that, and he gives a great example, which we'll talk about here. So he says that the IQ of husbands and wives is at least as highly correlated as the IQs of brothers and sisters. So mm -hmm. this is people given their free choice will associate with other individuals who let them from an acting human standpoint, kind of enact their economic goals. And what's really interesting here is that this bad thinking, this bad terms, bad thinking, goes all the way back to Rousseau. And I kind of, I mm. want to bring us, I want to pull us into the Sowellian fold now. And so what he's talking about is 
is the foundations of the prevailing vision. Okay. And we had a shift in vision in the planet around the mid of the 20th century. And that vision was something like that people are only depraved because they're deprived. Mm -hmm. But actually, empirically, people were much poorer in the first half of the 20th century. They were much poorer and had much better behavior and society was much better ordered. There was less crime. Mm -hmm. And as the social welfare programs became enacted, crime rates went up. Mm -hmm. And so even though it wasn't the case, that that wasn't true. And here's the thing. This invincible fallacy goes all the way back to Rousseau. And he quotes Rousseau. He says, the equality which nature established among men and the inequality which they have instituted among themselves. So, Mm -hmm. and guess what? Then Sol immediately goes to say, wait a minute. Nature, in the form of geographic isolation, doomed whole peoples to lagging for centuries or even millennia behind the progress of the rest of the world. And what Sowell is showing is that nature has great volatility. So 90% of the world's tornadoes occur in America, mm-hmm. in the United States. Right. Is that because God hates the United States? No, that's mm-hmm. just peculiarities of, of geography and meteorology. And you know, let's look at another example. One of the reasons that African nations have tended to be so poor is that a lot of the countries are landlocked. And the soils are, are not fecund. They're, the soils are not productive at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, tornadoes, lightning strikes, fertile land. These are not evenly distributed in any way. And so the whole idea that in some ideal state, socialism has this fallacy as well. In some ideal state, there would be no scarcity and there would be a difference among people isn't even true empirically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think on the point of tornadoes, he says like in other parts of the world, there's, you know, four out of five precursors for, for tornadoes, something like that. But in the United States, it's the only place in the world where it has all of the precursors. So surprise, surprise, we get 90% of the tornadoes in the U S. So it's like to not have the complete set of precursors means you're just not going to get tornadoes. So, and he compares that to, um, what types of, of socioeconomic success, right? Where if you're missing just one piece, um, you could actually not be successful. Whereas it, it takes, it's kind of an all or nothing thing, right? You either have all of the components necessary and you, you get the tornado or you get the socioeconomic success, or you're missing just one and you don't have the tornadoes or, or the same rate of, of whatever the performative dimension he was measuring. Um, on the social welfare stuff, I think this is so interesting because again, just to get like high resolution on this, when we say something like social welfare programs, presupposed in that concept is theft via inflation and taxation, right? It's wealth redistribution. So some group is being stolen from, um, to then be given to that wealth is then given to another group. And so what he's observed here is that actually pre social welfare programs, you had people that were even poorer on a per capita basis, but interacting more peacefully Whereas after the implementation of these social welfare programs, that the same cohorts of poor people, at least in not to say the exact same people as we just described before, right. but people at the same position in the economic hierarchy were actually richer on a per capita basis, but they were less peaceful, right? There were, there were more of all the things you just described, all these social pathologies. So, you know, when I look at that, it's, it's something like this moral cancer of, of theft. Like when you integrate it into the system, trying to force an outcome, like, right, we're going to steal a little bit more from people via taxation and inflation to fund these social welfare programs to try and force 
a social outcome, what you actually create, the unintended consequence, are these various social pathologies that Soul describes. He has such a beautiful, uh, I'm going to fast forward to the end of the chapter and with the same theory of speed reading is that that will kind of help us align all the the deep thoughts that come before that into uh, some kind of coda or, or crescendo. Mm-hmm. So what he says is that, so this is another way of saying what you just said, but it's really deep. Uh, replacing reciprocal social obligations with unilateral subsidies of self-indulgences does not sound promising, even in theory. And he's mm-hmm. making, and in light of the social de- degeneration that's already taken place, the human consequences of the prevailing social vision hardly seem encouraging as an inducement to go further in that direction. Mm-hmm. So here we're seeing not only the immunity of the invincible fallacy to facts, but the, what he's saying is this, again, again, replacing reciprocal obligations among members of the family with unilateral and unconditional subsidies of the welfare state. So this is this fallacy of we that we've talked about that appears in Marx and others before, and the general socialist fallacy that human beings are somehow fungible, mm-hmm. when in fact human beings are very different from one another. And we've taken mm-hmm. the classic example, no matter how you may say in words that you will treat others equally to your family or to each according to his needs and from each according to his or her abilities, that doesn't mean that you can treat a homeless person with the same intensity that you treat your family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is an information asymmetry. So all of that to say, what we're looking at here is, is the destruction of language and destruction of terms and a destruction. This is a better way of putting it of the agency of the individual. Mm-hmm. And Milton Friedman famously said, he's someone was saying as well, you know, government has these and that, that responsibilities or corporations have these responsibilities. He says, no, individuals have responsibilities. And what Sol mentions in this chapter, and there's even a computer study that the word duty, like, you know, between pre mid 20th century and post mid 20th century has like almost disappeared from whatever literature they were surveying. Mm -hmm. And so this is the difference I think between rights and responsibilities. And there has been a great emphasis by the state on rights so that the state can seize power because again, they just make themselves the pretend advocates of some given group and say, oh, we're going to give this person right, this group rights and forget about how they're measuring things. We'll talk about that. Right. Disparate impact is what it's called. Right. We're going to give this person rights. We're going to give this group rights. We're going to give that, give that group rights. What happened to responsibilities? Right. And what Sowell shows is that the more rights and entitlements that we give to individuals, responsibilities disappear apace. And I'll give you a classic example. Mm. Let's say in a country like Sweden, you know, where the tax rate can be as high as 50%, right? I think it's higher actually in some cases. Mm -hmm. Well, you feel at that point that you've done your duty for your fellow man. Like, you know, half of my time, half of my income went to the state and therefore uh, there's no, what, what reason do I have to be charitable to my neighbor? You don't. Because somebody has created a false substitute for that thing. And in fact, you see this in the statistics is that Americans per capita give more than any other nation in the world, in spite of this is changing very quickly, having a lower taxation rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, Always try to simplify that to, you know, if you have a, if someone claims you have a universal right to three hot meals a day, like it's a human right. Well, the other side of that coin is who is the chef responsible for preparing the meals, right? You can't, it's not enough to just go around and say, this is a human right. You see this on Twitter all the time too. A lot of these leftist politicians saying, Oh, affordable housing is a basic human right. You know, the three, uh, whatever 
I think it's usually housing, food, like things that you would intuitively agree with. Like, yeah, oh, that makes sense. I want people to be fed and sheltered, but you can't just, it's not enough to just have the rhetoric and say that there has to be an actual practical plan for how you're going to make it real, right? Someone has to make the meals. Someone has to build the houses. Um, and it, it just, yeah, it's, it seems like we're too, we overemphasize the rights and we de-emphasize the responsibilities necessary to bring those rights into existence. And that is just uh, a self-deluding pathway. One of the great themes of this book, which I think in the last episode you called an amygdala hijack, is you know we can talk about injustices of, of any kind. Uh, slavery is a famous one, which everybody agrees in injustice, and mm -hmm. that is kind of used to shut down people's reason. So in the same way, talking about equality and talking about people being entitled to meals is uh, it, it is an emotionally an emotional chord that is played to then seize political power. And there's a few, a few fallacies inherent in that. So first of all, when you assert a right, who has to provide that to you? Like you're, you're, you're also, you're asserting a claim to other people's time and labor implicitly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is one of the beautiful things that the bill of rights understood, but never actually teased out is the difference between positive rights and negative rights. From a libertarian perspective, the only rights that are inalienable are negative rights. What is a negative right is something people can't take away from you. Mm-hmm. A positive right is things that other people owe you. And let's look at an example. And there are, there's some great statistics on guns on this is that, you know, people assert healthcare as a positive right. Well, okay. You are now making a claim on the time, resources, intelligence, and labor of doctors and nurses and hospital systems. Okay. Contrast a negative right. The, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Mm -hmm. That just means that doesn't mean the government has yes. to provide you with a gun. Do you see the difference? Right. So there's a difference between, the government has to provide you with a gun versus if you choose to have one, that's the self-sorting. Mm -hmm. If you choose to have one, the government can't take, take it away from you. So I think the first X-ray is positive versus negative rights. When mm -hmm. we listen to politicians, hmm, are they talking about negative rights or positive rights? Yes. No, that's a great point. Cause that move you just made there was a higher resolution step, right? Like I was talking about rights in general, but to actually X-ray it a little further, you can look at them in positive and negative domain. That's important because the negative right doesn't require any output, right? That the government shall not infringe on your right to bear arms. There's no productive thing that has to be done. You just need to mind your own business basically. Right. So very important. Um, I'm going to jump back to one of these excerpts here. This is on page 157. And I just thought this was very telling about describing how different children in different circumstances have different levels of cognitive development independent of things we might traditionally think are, are causal such as socioeconomic status or, or ethnicity and soul rights in families where parents have professional occupations. Those parents used more words and more different words for all kinds, more multi-clause sentences, more past and future verb tenses. Such parents also gave their children more affirmative feedback and responded to them more often each hour they were together. Moreover, they gave less negative feedback to their children per hour than other parents. The ratio of affirmative words to negative words was six to one in families where the parents had professional occupations. By contrast, in families on welfare, negative or discouraging words outnumbered positive or encouraging words by more than two more than two to one. 
Negative responses included wor- such words as don't, stop, quit, and shut up. So it was just telling me, and, and this exposure that kids had, right, just by virtue of their parents being in a professional occupation to more and different words, more positive feedback, less negative feedback, had a significant impact on the path of their cognitive development um, versus those on welfare. And so, whereas uh, a statist or a rhetorician might say, oh, it's, you know, the cause is the kids are, are poorer. Uh, the truth is, no, it's like, what language, what is the quantity and quality of language they're being exposed to in their upbringing? That is much, much more of a high resolution causative factor um, in their development. Yeah, and that reminded me, uh, I think the state, by its very nature, tries to be very quantitative. It ends up being not so at all, but here's what I mean. The individual, for the individuals, the interactions are qualitative. And, you know, we have a sense, I know this person, I know this neighborhood, uh, I understand, you know, whether or not I can trust uh, this group in an exchange. And uh, the state then comes and just looks at the numbers. And the, one of the fallacies that they commit, so we talked about ex ante before the fact, excuse me, ex post before the fact versus ex ante after the fact last time. And that's based on time. And, and Sol now gives a spatial version of this. And what he says is that not only do they commit the invincible fallacy, they assume that if the disparity is measured in the Department of Education, then the Department of Education must be the cause of that disparity. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, he gives he gives a great example here of this kind of twisted thinking. And where I want to go with this, by the way, is that complexity and nuance and diversity, actual diversity, and the, the depth of the universe that we live in is completely obscured by sloppy terms. Yes. And, and in linguistics, we call the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? So, mm, and again, yeah. this is probably apocryphal, but, you know, something like, anecdotally at least, certain Eskimos have like 50 words for snow. Okay? Right. And they can speak with great intelligence and great rigor about all the different types. Like yes. Americans just have, you know, packed, packed and powdered if you're lucky, if you happen to be a skier, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we look at economic realities, which are organic, which are deep, which are made, which are coming from the universe, right? Mm-hmm. And then we just make these flat and blunt categories out of them. Well, we're going to have perforce sloppy thinking. And, yeah. you know, this is the nature of central planning is that what crosses a central planner's desk is never the fate of flesh and blood human beings, but abstract categories. Because a central planner couldn't possibly look at 330 million individuals at a whole. They had to say, right. oh, let's create some kind of lowest common denominator policy, some averaging policy. Oh, the COVID, you know, mortality rate or infection fatality rate is different by age groups. Sorry, let's just shut everything down for everybody. It doesn't actually matter. No. Age doesn't actually matter. So here's Sol's number. He says, some hospitals may have higher death rates among their patients than other hospitals have. Okay. I'll, I'll just state mm-hmm. the essence of this. You cannot then reason that those hospitals are worse. It actually turns out, this reminds me of you know the, the airplane halls that you talked about last episode. Mm-hmm. It actually turns out that those are the more advanced hospitals and they have to do more advanced surgeries. They have more skills, more equipment, and they're doing like brain surgeries and heart surgeries and critical interventions, and they have a higher death rate. Mm-hmm. And so this is exactly what the Department of Education is doing, or it's the type of fallacy the Department of Education is like, whoa, hey, man, there's some really low outcomes here. These schools must be worse. No, there are complex hidden variables that are driving these outcomes, and we need to stop and not just assume that because a disparity is observed in a location, it was caused by that location. Yes. No, it's a, it's an excellent point. Um, on the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, I think it's also called linguistic relativity, right? Which is 
something to the effect that the language you speak has some determination on the thoughts that you can shape. Um, and, you know, rough examples being like the, the romance languages are more literary and poetic, whereas languages like English and German are more useful in commerce and science, things like this. Um, but to, to your point, like if you, in trying to get that lowest common denominator terminology, you, what you're doing is, you know, you're trying to, we're dealing with an infinitely fluid complex reality, but if you use just lowest common denominator, you're using a blunt instrument to try and describe or deal with that thing. And so it's the more blunted that instrument, the less useful it is. And this, you know, this kind of goes off and maybe too far afield. I just finished a book recently called metaphors we live by and it's staggering. It really, I think all after reading that book, I think all of our language is just, it's metaphorical, right? Even the word, we say a word like understand. And like, we just think that's, we take that word for granted, but what it means is to stand beneath, to get a deeper perspective on a thing. So uh, a rough thesis in this book is like, it's our physical experience of reality. That's actually, um, from which our language is being generated. And so when you're, this is why I think our language too changes over time based on technology, right? It's as we learn to deal with things in a more sophisticated way, we get new vernacular. Like we see this today with, that's a feature, not a bug, right? That wouldn't have even made sense 25 years ago, right? but now we say it all the time and everyone gets it, but that's by virtue of our, our changed physical experience of using digital technology and software and things like that. Now that makes sense. Um, so I, yeah, it's, I keep coming back to that. I'm not beating that dead horse to death, but it's, uh, this, this matter of trying to deal with something that's necessarily beyond the grasp of all language, but, but language is the best tool we've got to deal with it. So the more precise we can make our language, uh, the more adequately we can deal with these deep, complex phenomena like economics, psychology, et cetera, et cetera. I think you said that beautifully. And it's a totally new way of looking for me, at least at central planning. There's a saying, limited vocabulary, limited thinker. Mm. And, you know, that's really one of Sowell's points. If we don't use the proper terminology or if we're smashing two things together, let's take an example. Uh, if we're as blunt as to say, well, you know, the earth is just matter that ignores so many distinctions between dirt, brick, stone, Rubik's mm. cubes, phones, you know, whatever. Right. Mm. So the state, because it's a centralized system and has limited bandwidth, not to be confused with a distributed planning system where, you know, each of the individuals are, are autonomous agents acting in their own interests and have their own set of terms and their own rich realities. It tries to make everyone dance to the beat of the same drum. And in that process, that's the loss of information. That's the compression that we've talked mm -hmm. about, because in spite of what's happening with flesh and blood human beings in the real world, who, you know, my job was essential during COVID, my job was inessential during COVID, mm -hmm. who were then put out of work. Right. All that crossed central planner's desk was a number and an emotion of fear. And so um, this limited vocabulary, limited thinker is very much, I think, this idea that Sowell is developing. And he goes a step further. It isn't just the vocabulary. It's the mental model or the metaphor that, that vocabulary fits into. And what Sowell is showing is that um, as the prevailing social vision became incorrect, our interpretation of reality became incorrect. Yes. And we got, you know, the equivalent of the business cycle for all of society. Yeah. Because... I guess in, uh, the business cycle in Austrian economics is about, well, there's certain economic realities 
that are happening uh, around capital allocation, around interest rates. And then we go in and, and, you know, put a false signal in there. And then there's, you know, an overshoot and an undershoot. And this is what causes the business cycle. Well, I mean, that means that there's a business cycle for mental models. And I think we're exactly Mm -hmm. in that. And that's a great, I've never thought of it this way. Socialism is a hangover of a bad intellectual model. Mm. And it's a hangover. And we're still, Sol is showing that thinking goes all the way back to Rousseau, like mm-hmm. way before Marx, right? Yes. Or, right. And so, so what is the key point here is that, you know, it's a really beautiful is that we as a, a, a species are waking up and mm-hmm. we're waking up by thinking better and by thinking clearer. And it's great. It is only because we have, you know what? This is a great example. 10 years ago, if I had talked about distributed systems, a very limited number of people would have known what I was talking about. Yeah. Because we have Bitcoin today, it's like, oh yeah, distributed system, like, okay, there's nodes and it consists. Like, maybe they didn't even go that far, but they've at least heard the term. Yeah. And uh, this is, I am extremely excited. You know, this is kind of the progressive waking up of humanity. So the divine right of kings and then, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. the information, yeah. the, the majority rights and the democracy. And now with the internet, it's kind of becoming the information rights of the cognoscenti. So like, you know, that cognoscenti mm-hmm. is a negative term, but it's like people who know. So we're, we are slowly waking up from these bad mental model hangovers that we've had. And that's what the Austrian economists and Seoul are trying to get us to do. And they go even a step further and say, there's no model. There's no yeah. model for any of this stuff. It's complex dynamics, folks. You can have everything can be distributed in a bell curve, but if you need more than one characteristic, the outcomes are not bell curve distributed. It's complex. Yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent point. I, uh, what came up for me there too is, you know, fiat currency. Uh, having read The Creature from Jekyll Island a long time ago, I remember using that term and people were like, what the fuck is that? No one had ever <laughs> heard of that word ever. No one. And now it's yeah. pretty common. Like most people or a lot more people know it now. I don't, maybe not most, but a lot more people are familiar with it by virtue of Bitcoin, I think coming into existence and driving this, this cultural conversation about the nature of money. Um, and yeah, we are just really trying to map these complex dimensions of reality with our social constructs, whether they are, you know, language, metaphors, money, law, all of these things. And, and it matters, right? It matters a lot how we name these things. Um, I'll read one excerpt from Seoul here on that point. He writes, when a study showed young male doctors earning very substantially higher incomes than young female doctors that might signal sex discrimination to those who believe in the invincible fallacy. But when empirical data showed that young male doctors averaged 500 or more working hours annually than young female doctors worked, that mattered to those who prefer hard facts to sweeping visions. For those who think in terms of talking points, it may be sufficient to show that male airline employees in Britain are paid more than female airline employees. But for those who are more interested in facts about the real world than about rhetorical successes in the world of words, it matters that far more pilots are male while most flight attendants are female. And you cannot make them be the same by calling both quote unquote airline employees. I mean, soul is just an absolute beast <laughs> when he writes stuff like that. I'm so glad you hit that, that quote. Cause I was just, I was just thinking about it and getting to that. And, and what is he showing there? The appearance and reality are very different. And I want to talk about the first statistic for a second. So like, okay, empirical numbers was it the examples was male doctors are working 500 hours more now. And this not now let's not reinvoke the invincible fallacy. That doesn't mean that men are harder working than women. That has nothing to do with it. 
There are other complex causative factors. Let's take an example. It's just a fact of nature. Only women can bear children. Yeah. Maybe they're splitting their time. Maybe those additional 500 hours went into rearing and bearing children. Okay. And now here's the thing, and this goes back to a system we came to the last show that may cause a disparity in incomes between men and women, because mm -hmm. men are going to have more experience in the workplace. And that doesn't mean that there's any active discrimination going on. Right. And again, ever the scholar Thomas Sowell goes and shows, Hmm, like, let me pull up data for female professors who are unmarried. And it turns out that they earn more than male professors. Hmm. So the actually is that women are smarter than men, but you would never know that by listening <laughs> to, to the prevailing interpretation of statistics, yes. which is based on, on, which is based on the invincible fallacy that wherever there's a disparate outcome, someone must've been causing discrimination. And throughout this book, Sol destroys this fallacy on both sides. He shows examples where uh, there was discrimination and there was no disparity. And he shows examples where there was no, uh, let me see if I can come up with that. He shows examples where um, even in the absence of, of discrimination, there's no disparity. Sorry, I'm not doing this well. And then when there's disparity, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's discrimination. Right. So like, I guess he hits that implication from, from every different angle. And um, I think it shows the power of this emotional or semantic hangover, mm -hmm. which is to say that when we have a bad mental model, like it dies really hard. And actually this reminds me, Robert, of something you've said a lot, which is that People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Mm. And I think we need to consider the we need to consider the fact that these are social, these are cognitive resonances. Oh, this is so important. A culture is a cognitive resonance. And you know, this goes back to the extended order and Hayek and what are the things that create social order that aren't rational planning? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, culture and intuition and religion and things that people do, not even knowing why they're doing things. And mm -hmm. Hayek calls this morals in the extended sense. But what I'm trying to say is that soul is actually showing that it's not these, you know, individuals and disparate outcomes. It's kind of the mental model of a culture that people come from that mm -hmm. is far more predominant in what outcomes they produce than their socioeconomics or their race or their gender or their religion. Yes. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing like a shedding of mental models. And fiat is a hangover. It's a mental model we've had forever and ever and ever going back to, you know, what does fiat actually come from? Well, it comes from the king. Well, he's the king saying mm -hmm. that this should be the way. Right. That, and it's actually before that, the guy yeah. with the biggest biceps <laughs> or the biggest sword was like, yeah. no, 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 this is the way. And he probably said, uh, with a club, you know, didn't say much of anything to it. And so I guess we're coming out of this bad mental model hangover. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it is that breaks a hangover because soul is trying to break this bad resonance of like, Hey, this Rousseauian mental model, I'm depraved because I'm deprived mm -hmm. or the idea that nature is somehow equal when it's not, he even says, you know, the outcomes of nature are far more unequal than any human economic system, any inequality that human economic systems have produced. So I'd love your thoughts on, on how, and, and then this podcast is trying to do that. What, what are the ways that invincible fallacies or uh, metaphorical hangovers get broken? As a, at the societal level. Well, that's a gigantic question that I don't really know the answer to exactly. But I think what you were just hitting on there, the the hangover of the divine right of kings, right? There was this cultural assumption or presupposition perhaps for many, many centuries that kings or people that were in nobility were somehow a different species, I guess, than those, than commoners, Right. Maybe they didn't think in terms of species. That's more of a modern biological term, but there was a different people were born to be noble or people were born to be commoners, right? There was no social mobility. And that has changed over 
time, I, I would argue, I think because of our technological advancement, right. That we, as hmm, I don't exactly know, but it seems like as you go into something like the industrial age where you can actually see the fortunes of people changing as a result of their efforts, right. That we learn about the nature of delayed gratification, for instance, that you can create wealth by, you know, coordinating your actions and delaying gratification and saving for the future. Well, all of a sudden that commoner can become a rich merchant, right? And then maybe when you, when you see that taking place over a long enough period of time that people's, your conception of social stasis breaks down because you've seen social mobility play out right in the real world. Um, hmm. The other dimension to that, and this is where I'm pretty far afield for myself, but, um, you know, Peterson argues a lot that morality is emergent. He talks about wolves, right? When the head wolf kills a moose and he eats the 40 pounds, but there's another thousand pounds of moose to eat. He lets the other wolves eat it, right? There's sort of this reciprocal altruism. Um, and then when there's disputes among alpha wolves or competing wolves competing to be alpha, they don't fight to the death. Like one of them like rolls over and gives up their neck. And then he like respects the the superiority of the alpha. And so they, they have like this proto morality in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to need all 12 wolves to bring down the next moose. It's not going to be useful for the group. If you kill a, a very high functioning male wolf, every time there's an alpha dispute, so I, maybe humans have some similar emergent morality that as our technological landscape changes and as we're creating more wealth per capita, that it's it's easier for us to be less contentious and less violent towards one another. But we can we can undo that process when we start trying to impose a social vision, which which necessitates theft and coercion and violence and all these things, right? And so maybe that's why people that were, as you said, in the first half of the 20th century are poor people, right. That are actually richer after the implementation of welfare, social programs, yet they're doing worse, right. They're not, yeah. their lives are worse because you've imposed this, this redistribution or you've broken the moral code in some way. And so there's something about this, this, we keep talking about self-sorting or self-organization in like kind of a practical sense, but it seems like uh, people have a deep moral sense and moral intuition. When you break that, it, it causes things to unravel, right? No one likes to be robbed. Even the recipients of that wealth redistribution seem to be doing worse off. So, um, yeah, that was me flailing about trying to answer that question. <laughs> a few, a few beautiful things came out there. So one, what the, we talked about wolves and the wolf pack, what the animals have is reciprocity. You know, yeah. I won't rip out your throat if you don't rip out mine. And this is why predators are actually very careful about uh, the conflict, any conflicts that they enter into, because they're doing a risk assessment of, you know, whether or not they, they will be viable in the future. And therefore, mm -hmm. they only take kind of calculated risks, so to speak. So, but here's the thing. We, in the current social vision, we have replaced reciprocity or responsibility with unilaterality. Yeah. So, and, and I right. want to kind of answer my own question, which you helped me get to, which was, the way that we destroy cultural hangovers or resonance of bad ideas is through counterexamples. Mm. And because a single counterexample can mm. demolish, like it's right, kind of right, like right. a single spark that, that destroys all this the, is, the, the uh, single spark destroy, reduce the whole heat. This is the black swan disconfirmation yes. is more rigorous than confirmation, right? It's the a viewing of a single black swan can tell you not all swans are white, but seeing a billion white swans can never tell you that all swans are white. 
nailed it. And, and I want to take some of our own medicine. This is one of the main points of diversity and inclusion. And is that, you know, I'll take a very personal example uh, from my own life. I'm the, the, uh, my parents come from the country of India and we've had a rise in Indian grandmasters. Like, you know, there's all these of chess of the game of chess. Right? And then we had a world champion and I cannot deny, even though I'm against the modern implementation of diversity and inclusion, that when I saw an individual who looked like me succeed at a domain that I cared about a lot, it fundamentally changed how I viewed the world. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is, you know, the single disconfirmation. confirmation. So I think, you know, and this is the thing which we need to do through capitalism and through Bitcoin and through free economic exchange. And the nation of El Salvador is trying this is mm-hmm. that let's create pockets of prosperity where optionality, volatility, and choice prevail that should produce better outcomes for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to get into kind of this, uh, this paradox and show how painful an incorrect hangover is with soul's own words. Okay. So one of the things that we hear in uh, today's discourse is the idea that the system is rigged. And we hear this uh, mm-hmm. idea of this promise of multiculturalism. And, and I want to, I want to go through, wow, there's too much good here to, for me to not to read. It's a little bit of a long clip, mm-hmm. but I want to hit it. Among these prerequisites, among these prerequisites is that the beneficiaries of the largesse to be distributed are not to be seen as causally and hence morally responsible for their own misfortunes. And this is one of the key fallacies of the prevailing vision. There can only be external causality. Mm-hmm. So what are they doing? They're attacking the agency of the individual. They're saying individuals don't matter. Your skin color, your race, your economics, where you came from is what matters. And that's the only thing that determines your future, which is false. And it creates this system as rig mentality, which we want to go into. Multiculturalism with its bedrock premise that all cultures are equally deserving of respect, or at least that it is blaming the victim to say otherwise, this is so deep, is a logical corollary of the political or ideological prerequisite that causation be depicted as external. That Mm -hmm. is the flaw. Not all causation is external. Some of it's intrinsic. Some of it's based on complex factors. He goes Mm -hmm. on. The moral illegitimacy of the existing order, epitomized in such catchwords as, quote, the system is rigged, is likewise essential to the political success of the prevailing social vision. This is where it gets deep. Violations of the moral or legal rules that apply to others by designated victim groups are therefore considered to be justified or at least understandable. Mm-hmm. Since the purpose of all this is a set of concrete policies, people who see the world differently are not to be engaged and debated, but instead discredited and silenced, even or perhaps especially on academic campuses. Mm-hmm. So uh, two things I want to tease out there. So one is if the prevailing social vision is that people are depra- are deprived because, excuse me, are depraved because they're deprived or that uh, people, the system is rigged. We are teaching individuals that the only remaining advantage is for them. Remaining option is to not participate or to destroy the system. Right. So the prevailing social vision very much affects the economic actors. It's an incentives question. We're putting horrible incentives in front of people. What do I even do with the fact if I believe the prevailing social vision that, you know, my race is an all determining characteristic or that the system is rigged? What do I even do with that? Yeah. I mean, one of the options is I destroy and watch this. He's actually, so actually just explained why all these measures of civilization got worse after the 60s because we went to this all-inclusiveness. You're a murderer. It's okay. It's because you were disadvantaged, yeah. right? Ignoring the complex realities that drive that. And one of the statistics he repeats multiple times in this book is that a majority of people in prisons are from single parent households, nothing right. to do with race, nothing to do with wealth or income. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess run with that. Like if we have a bad mental model as a society, we're going to get poor participation or lack of participation worse. Like 
that's a great way to put it. Bad ideas cause the put people to the guillotine. Like that that's Marxism in a nutshell. Yeah, it's so man. So what's hitting me here is this idea that all this like I guess it's a fatal conceit, right? That all causality is external. Right. And saying it's it's all from the objective world, quote unquote objective world. I think that's almost equivalent to saying there's no free will, right? That you just whatever is happening to you is causing the outcome, right? That your agency and choice has no no influence in the matter. Um, and I think that would create an illusion actually that central planning, the machinations of central planning would actually work in a world like that where everything's just external. You just need to move the external factors right. around. And it's wow. again, even that word machinations, right? It's metaphorical for a machine, right? We're yeah. talking about a complicated machine. This is, this is Taleb confusing the cat for the washing machine, right? The, the washing machine is complicated. It's not complex. The cat is complex. You can go in and mechanically repair the washing machine so that it's in functional working order. Much more difficult to do that to the cat, right? The cat's a complex system. You can't just replace parts and, and get it running as, as normal. And so if you, there's kind of a, a contradiction here though, because if you give people that illusion that all this causality is external, then they're left with no other option, as you said, than to either destroy the system or opt out somehow. Then that's actually kind of proving that causality can also be subjective, right? That people can, their choice to opt out or destroy the system can actually undermine the system itself. So it's it's this weird, self contradictory, um, and this is part of the invincible fallacy, I guess, too. That I'm not sure about that. It's related. Yeah, I think it's about the smallest minorities. So uh, the the political discourse is about, hey, let's protect these minorities. And, you know, this is again, uh, so I, I hate to say this. So first of all, my belief is that every human being has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And that it is the it, government either needs to get out of the way or provide the factors that allow that that proper equality of opportunity mm-hmm. to flourish. But the the smallest minority is the individual. And and all of this talk about disadvantaged groups, what we've forgotten to do is to protect the individual. And this Mm -hmm. chapter is actually about the fact that the agency of the individual has been destroyed and attacked. The Mm -hmm. agency of the smallest minority has been destroyed and attacked by the prevailing social vision. Why? Again, because this concept of individual reciprocity was replaced with unilaterality. And this is, again, what this mechanistic view of the universe does. Central planning is a form of averaging where I, with limited information, now come to prescribe a, a policy for you know a very broad and diverse policy of people. And so uh, the, it's not even that the, the vision, the prevailing social vision is wrong. It actually produces results that are completely the opposite of its own state of logical intent. Mm. And you know this kind of reminds me of why Austrian economists are so careful with their terms because garbage in, garbage out, mm-hmm. right, is is mm-hmm. is what we're getting culturally, and and I wonder if we can figure out. I guess souls, you know, going back to the theme of how we how we wake up from this, how we shake this hangover off. I think one thing we said was counterexamples. There uh, are certainly attempts to create economic counterexamples, and that's what Satoshi said. He's like, all right, exit from the fiat system. Here's a new mm-hmm. system, right? For which he invented Nakamoto consensus, like which is the most important, you know, where you know everyone and no one kind of controls the machine. Uh, let me let me pull us back uh, to the Solian thread with seekers of social justice. He uses that in quotation marks 
in a sense of equal or comparable outcomes proceed as if eliminating racial bias, sex bias, or other group bias would produce some approximation of that ideal outcome. But what are the implications of the fact that a majority of people in American prisons were raised with either one parent or no parent? People in groups where many children grow up in single-parent homes do not have the same probability of being incarcerated as people who grow up in groups where single-parent homes are rare. Were the, so, And now this is the key point. But those who believe in the invincible fallacy may believe that the problem originated where the incarceration statistics were collected in the criminal justice system. So again, we've seen this sloppy system on multiple levels. We've seen it in space. We've seen it in time. We've seen it in semantics. So I guess what is what is the next next turn uh, now uh, in complex thinking so that we can at least for our own selves take down the invincible fallacy and also like start start a new cultural uh, resonance around individual agency and optionality. Oh, well, that's another huge question. Um, I mean, it seems like a good first step would be, I don't don't know. The intuition I get is that a lot of people like as the namesake of the book here, right? Discrimination and disparities. There's just this, assumption that if there's an unequal outcome, that something unfair has happened, something immoral has taken place. Whereas the, clearly the opposite is the case, right? There is no, yeah. there's no equal outcome really anywhere in anything that we can find anywhere. Um, so maybe it is just equipping people with that. I don't know, but this counterexamples aren't enough there, right? It, this is more like where the theory seems to hold sway. It's like, it's not objectively unfair. It's, it's the nature of an entropic universe, Ooh. something like that. You helped me a lot with this, uh, because one of the points that soul makes throughout. So what we said is counterexamples can be very, can be influential mm-hmm. or examples can be influential even, right. If, if they're counterexamples to what the prevailing social vision is, but now here's the second problem. Some, some higher order thinking is that what if the prevailing vision prevents you from seeing the examples at all. Mm. And w- what soul remarks is that hypothesis testing is like not on the radar of, of any of the demagogues who are promoting these social visions. Mm-hmm. And he gives a really clear example. And I apologize in advance if I seem obsessed with Marxism, but it's one of the fundamental paradigms of economics and so many modern theories going, you know, from modern monetary theory to critical race theory yeah. are actually just repackaged or central banking. And I think you've had yeah. so many examples, right? Yeah. So uh, what, what soul observes like, okay, what was the theory? What is the core theory of Marxism to be tested? It mm-hmm. is that the poverty of the working class or the proletariat is caused mm-hmm. by exploitation of the capitalist class or the bourgeois. Okay. So, all right. So what is the hypothesis is that, well, the, the poverty of individuals, the struggles of the working class are caused by exploitation by the capitalist class. Okay, yes. now let's actually test this hypothesis. There isn't a Marxist nation on earth where the conditions of the workers exceeds the conditions of workers in capital com- in countries. So mm-hmm. the very hypothesis of Marxism is demonstrably and empirically false because if the suffering of the workers was caused by the exploitation of the capitalist class, where yeah. you have the most capitalists, you will see the most suffering workers. In actual fact of reality, exactly the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. And here I'm showing, so here's an example where we have a counterexample, but people aren't listening anyway. And I, I don't want to talk more about mm-hmm. this and hit the New York Times, attack the New York Times in a second, but I'll let you jump in there. Um, no, I would just add that, again, to get as high resolution as possible, Mises makes this point in human action. It's easy to say capitalist versus working class as if 
some individuals are 100% capitalists and some individuals are 100% working class. But in matter of fact, we're each assuming different roles in each of our actions, right? Like I might go and work a nine to five job and then I'm in the quote unquote working class, but then maybe at night I'm in, I'm buying a rental property or something like that. And I'm acting as a capitalist. So there's you're, you, once again, it's like, it's very easy to say that. And then you want to be in group out group us versus them. But the reality is you can assume a different role in any given action at any given moment. Yeah. And to that point, everyone is an entrepreneur, right? And, you know, this is one of the, we talked about this gender differences. Uh, Women are deeply entrepreneurial and that like, oh, I have to have a child and do gathering. That doesn't mean that's the only thing they can do. But from a historical standpoint, hunting versus gathering, there has been a specialization across these these, uh, uh, different genders um, in in many different ways. Now, here's what what I want to get to is that I phrase this chapter as the destruction of the agency, the individual and the destruction of the rights, of the individual and anybody who's concerned with Liberty is concerned with individuals first and mm-hmm. foremost. Mm-hmm. And we are, an, we, in reality, we are a whole, a civilization, an organization, a society, a state, a locality comprised of sentient individuals. And you phrase it this way. It's almost an attack on free will. And I want to go there. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. 
Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So what Sol says is that, so he uses individuals to reason about the, the social visions. It's a very interesting dance of general and specific here. But what he says is if you interview psychopaths and sociopaths, murderers, actual murderers, and they talk about how they treated other human beings, they use the passive voice. Mm -hmm, and they say, the knife went in. Okay, And this is exactly what the prevailing social vision is saying is like, oh, there was crime. You know, they're not talking about (laughs) flesh and blood human beings who were harmed. They're saying like, oh, this thing happened. But it was probably the result of another injustice, this is empirically not true, that was uh, inflicted upon this group, and then they were just returning that favor favor to society. Right. And so uh, it's this, you know, it's taking away the agency of the individual is a hallmark of sociopaths. And in this regard, I want to get into one of the things we're talking about in the warm-up to the show. Agencies like the New York Times, who just repeat, New York Times, who just repeat critical race theory, who... Put the passive voice for things that were actually, that's a great example. Uh, depending on the race of the murderer, they'll say, you know, this thing happened versus this person did it. Mm. Right? Like, mm. you know, I mean, this is just an insane twisting of reality. And uh, I'd love it if you hit that example of, uh, it was, I think it's a, a tale of two riots. You know, like, you know, but one was like 40s, another was 70s. Yeah, talk about that and yeah, how the, the media portrayed it. Well, there's a sidebar at the end of this chapter, and I'll try to recall what it was before I speak to it here. So there, there was basically, I think these are two blackouts in New York city where the power went out for at least 24 hours. One was in the early sifties. The second one was in 1977, I believe. Yep. 65 and, the, and 77, 65 and 77. And soul just, um, makes a point that in the, the blackout in 1965, um, nothing really happened. There wasn't really any crime. Like crime went down. Crime, crime went, went down, down so actually, over, yeah. yeah, for the night. Like people were being helpful, and he, I think he used the term conviviality. Like it was just people were helping each other get through the blackout, and crime actually declined. And then an almost identical circumstance um, took hold in 1977. I think another blackout, and it was the exact opposite outcome. Like there was just massive. Um, they said like within. Uh, hours of the blackout that fires could be seen, you know, people were looting, destroying property, uh, everything that could be smashed was smashed. And, you know, I admittedly looking at the world through the money lens, my question is, you know, well, pre 1971 and post 1971, how much of the debasement of currency or the shift onto a fully fiat paradigm actually contributed to, the different social responses we saw to the blackouts. And this gets into something like I've talked about with the author of the psychology of totalitarianism, Matthias Desmond, who's written the book on um, mass psychosis. And 
basically, you know, he's, he's explored a lot of the contributory factors, but one of them is when you violate people's private property, you're actually loosening their grip on reality, right? It's hard, harder to deal with reality when you, you can't trust an institution like property. You know, you don't know if you own the thing that you think you own. You don't know if the money in the bank is actually yours. You're going to be able to get it out. So seeing those two different sociological responses, you know, within the span of a couple of decades being totally opposite to one another and right smack dab in the middle is 1971, where we shifted fully onto a fiat paradigm, which is the accelerated debasement of private property. Effectively, the question in my mind becomes like, how much does the debasement of the monetary standard or the institution of private property contribute to the debasement of social cohesion and morality? Mm. You know, one of the things this reminds me of is that when, for all of its pretended rigor, when the Keynesians don't know what's happening, they resort to ridiculous theories and they say, oh, it's the animal spirits that drive the behavior of the consumers. And what that reminds me of is very much the, this posture that the New York times took to those, to those riots. And what they said was, you know, they knew that the statistics were quite disparate between 65 and 77 for the riots. And then they said their explanation was, for the 77 riots where crime went up dramatically and there was looting and arson, Mm -hmm. the good Samaritans of 1965 were not conspicuous last Wednesday night. Right. right. So they offer these kind of ridiculous fiat theories for why things happened. And I guess what I'm tying together there is the bad thinking of animal spirits with the Mm -hmm. bad thinking of, Oh, this thing just happened, or there's some random reason why it happened. And when in fact, what we should be saying is, wow, this prevailing social vision doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Sol goes like, he says, you know, in the, in the early half of the 20th century, the British had a, rep- a reputation for tremendous order and gentility mm-hmm. at amazing scale. And they give all kinds of examples. Like, and there were foreigners, I think someone from Singapore or Thailand was, was visiting the UK and they noted that like, wow, there is an honor system for the the newspaper stand and you can just walk by and they know these things don't exist anymore. And I want to talk more about that in just a second. So there was a sea change around the middle of the century, which, you know, not coincidentally, uh, I think Bretton Woods around 71, like, you know, the convertibility of the dollar gold, like was completely destroyed by the time 71 came around. So to your point, is this causation? I don't know. There Mm -hmm. is a correlation between a sea change, a shift in monetary policy, which, you know, right around the the middle of the 20th century and a a sea change in in behavior. So uh, at least there's a correlation. And maybe it's part of this theme you opened the episode with is that language, law and money are the networks Mm -hmm. that complex systems use to communicate. And if you corrupt the communication links, then you corrupt, you disrupt the communication. So you said this coordination, you said this offline beforehand, like a network is only as good as its links, right? So well, what are the links in these complex networks we're describing? Well, language is one, the pricing mechanism is another private property is another, right? The link between owners and assets. Um, and we're, we're constantly looking, I, maybe this is somewhat human nature, even the, the terminology we use, is this an upstream effect or is this downstream, right? Is culture upstream yeah. from economics or downstream from economics? Like again, metaphorically, we're humans that have grown up near flowing bodies of water. So we say upstream or downstream, but when you get into really, you get into biology, right? Up close, what you don't see really uh, direct arrows of causality. What you see is a lot of feedback loops, right? Like where every action is kind of creating opposite reactions that create, um, complex, unpredictable behavior. This is the source of 
unintended consequences and things like this. So, um, I think when we're, when we're actually looking at the world upstream and downstream might be a pretty blunt instrument, right? Something we can use, but the reality is everything influences everything else at, at a high enough resolution. And so the, the key point uh, and what you said there, like a network is only as good as its links is we should try and preserve the integrity of the links such that the truth is propagating through these systems, right? That we're adapting to reality as it actually is rather than as we wish it would be. Um, and I tried to capture all this in a tweet at one point, and I'll, I'll read that. I wrote that the worst thing you can do to any self-organizing system is to interrupt its internal communications network. For the world economy, pricing is the internal communications network. Central banking destroys the self-organization of the world economy by interrupting pricing. Now you could swap out, you know, pricing is what's coordinating the world economy. Well, language and rational discourse is what's coordinating a lot of human action at the micro level. And even to some extent at the macro level, when you start interrupting those linkages, whether it's language, pricing, again, property, I think you're, you're pushing entropy into the system, right? The system, I, I forget how you described coordination earlier. You said something, action is something at a distance, but you're interrupting the ability of the system to adapt to the conditions of reality. And when you do that, like that's almost the definition of, of, of negative outcomes and chaos, right? If you're not adapting to what actually is, well, you're not changing reality, right? So reality is probably smacking you in the face. Right? If you're not diving under the wave in the ocean, you just stand there because you don't think the wave's really going to hit you. Well, then the wave hits you and it knocks you on your ass. So I hope that makes some sense. So many beautiful ideas came out there. Uh, so the first is there is no before and after. There is no upstream or downstream in a complex system. And I want to give people yeah. a mental model for this. And a mental model is if we think of a complex system where many variables and many systems are at play and no one's tail is wagging the dog, no one system is driving the other. So if we have uh, billions of, of strings and of as many different colors, and they are embedded in millions of different ways in a very complex tangle, you can't say that one is driving the other or that one even comes before the other. That's the first point. And the second point is that this thing that we all value, whether socialist or capitalist, it doesn't matter, or anarchist, this thing that we all value is not governmental order. We mm. value actual order and organization, an extended order across the globe, which is prosperity and communication across the globe. And here's mm. a succinct way of saying what you were saying, and the network is only as good as its links, is that this organization is nothing but coordination at a distance. Mm. And the reason mm -hmm. we talked about this in the Austrian economics episode, and we brought up this, uh, go, go and find it, the, the iPencil economics article, very short. And it basically shows that there's no one person on earth who knows how to manufacture a pencil, the bite and the rubber, uh, the ferrule, that little metal mm -hmm. piece that's used to adapt the rubber to the wood, the lacquer. These all come from all around the world, different skills, different people, the graphite. It needs to be compressed in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the pencils need to be manufactured in a certain way. And the single dimension of the price coordinates all these factors at a distance. Mm -hmm. And then this, this one thing, which is now commodity levels of cheap, and the world is better for it because we have more writing because pencils are cheap. And we won't even need pencils very soon. And, mm -hmm. and digital pixels are probably even cheaper to manufacture than, than pencils or than graphite. But the key point is that this extended order and this communication at a distance, which is the global civilization that we all want to have. I'm not saying that in the sense of one world order, nothing like mm -hmm. that. 
But in order for us to have coordination between India and Iran and America and Iceland and all these disparate, the links, the communication, the law, the language, and the money need to be good. And in the prevailing social vision, we have attacked all three of those. And what happens when you destroy the coordination mechanism? Like, you know, this is a horrible thing to think about. But imagine you cut a major nervous, a major part of the nervous system. Well, Mm. now that entity, which was, you know, formerly connected to the whole is just kind of disjointed. And if it can even act at all, has to act on its own with very little Mm. intelligence. And I think that's the point is that by corrupting the communication links, by corrupting law, language, and money, we have re- people are now breaking into factions. You can literally see it happening mm-hmm. in front of yourself. And one of the purposes behind individual trade, one of the purposes behind Bitcoin is that nobody can mm-hmm. stop me from engaging in a free trade with anybody at any time for any purpose. Mm-hmm. And isn't it ironic that the thing that, that, that status and central planners fear the most, the free market is actually the mechanism of coordination around the globe that causes me not to care about gender, not to care about race, not to care about religion. I'm looking for the good. This sounds inhumane, but it's exactly the opposite at the cheapest price. And we've seen examples in Sowell's own work where the capitalists were actually driving the destruction of discrimination. Remember, it was the states that said the railroad cars couldn't be integrated. The railroad mm. companies were like, ah, please, I just want to put butts in seats. I don't care yeah. what the people look like. Like, right. you know, it's much cheaper for me to have a single car with everybody integrated. So, man, so many, so many thoughts there, but maybe, maybe you can, you can tie that all together. Yeah. Well, I've, what occurred to me there again, just our language tells us so much about ourselves, right? I think that the idea of the, the feedback loop being primary uh, and maybe the highest resolution depiction of our relationship to the world is like when the old saying, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? It's, we don't, we don't really know, right? It's just, it's, there's, there's a complexity there. Um, you can't say that sequentially throughout evolutionary history, there was a chicken and then the chicken started laying eggs. Like we don't really, right. it's hard to disentangle that. Right. Um, and I, I the, the one point I would make, like we said, law, money, uh, speech, you know, or language, I guess, being this, this medium for creating organization as coordination at over a distance or at a distance. Um, I would just point out there that, you know, law, the rule of law and money, these both ground out in the same institution, which is that most important link in the world, which is private property, right? The link between you and your stuff, you and your assets. So, this is why I'm always beating that drum. It's like, you have to have, again, if we're trying to preserve the integrity of the complex system, that is the world economy and have this extended spontaneous order that Hayek has, has written about, you need to maintain the integrity of the link, right? Like the network is only as strong as its links. The chain is only as, as strong as its weakest link, you might say. And, and that seems to be the most important link in the world. It's like, if you actually want to, solve problems, right. And, and bootstrap yourself out of a poor economic situation into a hot, into a better economic situation. Well, you need integrity mm-hmm. between the value of the things you create and the actual, your ownership over those assets, your power to control and exclude others from their use. Like that's the primary link here that makes the global economy, a functional network. This reminds me of something that Saylor said, Michael Saylor said, he said that the miracle of Bitcoin is not that you can transfer value over space. So, you know, it's really hard to move a ton of gold, 
let's say from the Philippines to the United States. I mean, you're going to pay a lot of money and it will be paid to intermediary agencies. Mm -hmm. The miracle of Bitcoin is not that you can transfer wealth almost instantly. There are block clearance times over space. It's that you can transfer wealth over time. That's right. And the observation I want to make here, if the network is only as good as its links, you know, this is a thought we've started before is that what new economic and humane structures of coordination can we project with better materials and better links? Right. Mm -hmm. And like Sailor has this whole hierarchy of, you know, it was only we could not have project naval power until we had better materials. So mm -hmm. the iron for instance, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the difference between a wood ship and an iron ship is massive in terms of scale, in terms of efficiency, mm -hmm. in terms of its ability to, uh, to move goods across space and time. And then uh, the aviation industry required, we had aluminum and titanium, like other more sophisticated materials. And so uh, the same way that bad terms, bad thinking, the same way that disrupting the, the links of law, language, and money can cause uh, isolation and cause chaos. And, you know, mm -hmm. you know what we saw in the, in the riots in New York, between 65 mm -hmm. and 77, by improving the quality of the materials, we improve the quality of the coordination. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, you know, that is a very constructive way to answer this hard question we've been asking is, you know, how do we come out of the hangover? Um, and actually, it's funny because it is Bitcoin is a counterexample to many things, for instance, that there's no such thing as perfect scarcity. Mm -hmm. It is a counterexample to many things, but uh, it's still people are still stuck in the fiat hangover, and it may take you know the Professor Hankies of the world many many years. You know they may have to be smacked in the in the face multiple times well, with the successes of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded here. I forget who said it, but um, science advances from funeral to funeral. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people that have just accepted these certain paradigms that will never allow something like Bitcoin or some other disruptive innovation to permeate their worldview. And the real scientific advancement comes as they die out, right? And new people uh, rise up in their stead. The other thing that occurred, and this is, I'm going to read an excerpt here from Soul, but this, you know, we were talking earlier about what, what else besides counterexamples, how do we recover from this fiat hangover or the hangover of a false social vision, let's say. Um, it does seem to me based on this excerpt I'm about to read that like interconnectivity and communication, the flow of information seems to be a really good um, cure to that, to those problems. We could say maybe the liquidity of ideas, something like that. Soul writes that even those of us who assume that the range of mental potential of human beings at the moment of conception is probably very similar across racial or other lines must nevertheless concede that both geographic and demographic differences make equal developed capabilities and outcomes based on developed capabilities very unlikely. Even at this late date in history, with the scope of communications reaching farther than it ever has reached before, children born in isolated mountain villages are unlikely to develop the same range of knowledge, skills, and experiences as children born in major seaports around the world. So again, where you're exposed to more variability or exchange of ideas or different perspectives, uh, the more enriched you seem to be from a, a, a cognitive standpoint, right? It's not, again, it's not, it's less racial and it's more um, experiential perhaps. And so, 
you know, in the digital age, we've we've taken the liquidity of ideas to a whole new level, right? That now information flows more freely than it ever has before. Presumably, that would be a a downward pressure on some of this um, false social vision, perhaps. And I also think too, this points out mm. points out the value of reading widely and traveling, right? That you're actually exposing yourselves to different viewpoints, whether this is of authors across history or you're, you're immersing yourself into different cultural viewpoints, uh, around the world. Like that seems, and you meet people, right? You meet people that have read a lot or have traveled a lot and they're just on another wavelength, right? They're just, I, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it seems like that is the type of person you would want to have mostly in the world. Like people that have read a lot and traveled a lot. Uh, they seem to have less, a type two discrimination <laughs> integrated into mm -hmm. their, their mental framework. They seem to be able to entertain complex ideas without necessarily accepting them at face value. They're, they're, uh, better critical thinkers, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, again, if, if, if we're looking for pragmatic solutions to, to resolving the fiat hangover, maybe it is, it's largely technological and communications based in that sense. I think there's a, an even bigger frame around that. And what you said is that volatility is extremely healthy for individuals, right? And so mm -hmm. the irony is that central planning is, is trying to take away variation and trying to take away volatility and diversity of experience, right? Whether, you know, it, it's through extreme hardship, that's forging, that's, that's quality creating for individuals, whether it's through exposure to broad geographies, whether it's through um, being exposed to greater time periods, being exposed to a variety of ideas, this is exactly volatility. And that's why I think, again, social soul just made this observation in the prevailing social vision, not only are these ideas not to be listened to, they're to be actively silenced on academic campuses. So here you can see this dance between, and you know, this is the fundamental paradox that destroys, that we need to embrace, that destroys the fatal conceit, which is that volatility and income mobility and actual diversity in the real world are all the same thing. Mm. And the extent to which we attempt to control, and what is that volatility? It's individual agency. It's optionality. It's mm -hmm. like, why should I only be prescribed to sit and learn the things that a public school tells me to learn? I may be ready to jump to the next generation of things, which I don't even know what they are that individuals today are interested in who will be the entrepreneurs of tomorrow. Mm. And so that was, I guess, a way of saying, this is, the, you know, we talked about this in the context of exercise and, you know, there's some a bunch of new exercise science coming out right now to say, if you go full bore for two or three minutes, mm -hmm. that's equivalent to like going medium bore multiple, like two or three minutes, let's say once a week, that's equivalent yeah. to going medium bore that produces a better outcome than just doing the average for 30 minutes, three times a week, right? I didn't get those numbers exactly correctly, but this is the whole point of, of the volatility that we get from the real world. It, uh, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think you've, you said this earlier, right? There is no income mobility without volatility or inequality, right? The, the very thing that the state's trying to suppress is the same thing that lets people bootstrap themselves up into higher positions. So you can't, it's so self-defeating. And uh, the point about working out, it's like, yeah, we are, nature is very volatile, right? Things change all the time. The one thing that never changes about operating in the natural world is that it's always changing. So what are we? Well, we're adapted to deal with that reality. So we're, 
we're load-bearing creatures, right? We have a high dynamic range. People can fast from food for many, many days. We can right. accelerate ourselves to very intense cardiovascular output and then rest. And it seems like training those dynamic ranges is um, somehow like the optimal path to growth or adaptation rather than trying to do, as you said, like, you know, I'm just going to go half ass at the gym 30 minutes, three times a week. Like that doesn't really do anything. Right? You, you quickly adapt and you know, this in working out too. Like if, if you try to run the same training program for like months on end, like you eventually just adapt to the training program and you stop getting results. One of the key things in working out is called muscular confusion, right? You need to throw different training programs, different movements, uh, different tempos, different frequencies, different load volumes, different intensities, you need to throw these at your body all the time to cause it to adapt, um, in, in new and, and new and beneficial ways. So, um, yeah, it's, it seems so silly that we would try and squelch that, right. Try to fit everyone into one box. It's just, it doesn't serve anyone. I mean, other than the status, I guess that's, that's misleading people that everyone should have, their own private Island when in fact, they're never going to get that. And they're just going to get taxed and regulated harder. <laughs> yeah. This income mobility point has been like an extraordinary theme of, of this series. And it, it really is this counterintuitive idea that the cure for inequality is mobility, but what is mobility? Mobility is you being unequal with yourself from yesterday. That's what mm. mobility is. And so in the attempt to, and this is again, in a sense where a one word can have multiple different meanings and multiple different dimensions that can be interpreted over. Mm -hmm. And if we just carte blanche say that we're trying to remove inequality, what you're also doing is destroying income mobility, which is the actual only thing that combats inequality. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to go back to this concept, which, which Sol has been driving this chapter, that there was a turning point around the, the middle of the 20th century as of 1960, two-thirds of all Black American children were living with both parents. Very beneficial for economic outcomes. That declined over the years until only one-third were living with both parents in 1995. That means that the concrete statistics that govern outcomes, or that at least are, are influential in those outcomes, went down after the prevailing social vision went up. And just to tie up this whole thing, it was the prevailing social vision was about the reduction of volatility, which is to say like, oh, we're all inclusive. Let's be unilateral. Let's, you know, kind of average everybody out. Let's take away self-sorting. And it actually produced, I, I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record now. It actually produced the opposite <laughs> outcome of what was intended. <laughs> well, right? I, and so I guess, you know. I was going to say, I, I felt the same way about the broken record thing, but I, I think repetition is important here. It's like he's, it's the same core theme, but just coming from every, like so many different possible perspectives and approaches. Um, you know, this one too, I'll read an excerpt here. I think it perhaps ties in. So he writes that such consequences of a toxic social vision tend to be especially dire for the less fortunate who suffer most when social order breaks down and violence is unleashed amid heady crusades. Poverty did not do that. There was more poverty in the first half of the 20th century than in the second half, but it was the second half dominated by the triumphant new social vision that saw what has aptly been called a decivilizing of a substantial segment of society on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so yeah, it, it's this, I don't know, like the, I read a long time ago, 
I can't remember the name of the book, but it was, it was talking about the nature of, of like Chinese medicine and the last, you know, the first line of defense is like food and can, you know, changing your conditions and changing your, your, uh, physical training routine. There's all these lines of defense and trying to improve the body's health. The very last line of defense was surgical intervention. Like that's the last thing you should do is try to actually do a hard intervention on the complex system of the human body to improve its health. Yet in Western medicine, right, we've inverted that completely. Allopathic medicine, the first line of defense is take drugs or do a surgery, right? There's nothing about nutrition, nothing about, uh, you know, physical training and all these things. So it, it seems like that these paradigms are just interrelated in a way that we've somehow in our, you know, quote unquote, advanced Western civilization, um, maybe been duped into believing that and maybe based on the success of our intervention so far, right? Like a lot of our interventions have created wealth and prosperity, but maybe it can just be taken too far or be used in inappropriate context. And we haven't, maybe that's what we're awakening to is that there's, there are costs to these interventions that we hadn't previously conceived of. I think that this all comes, this hangover, break this hangover comes down to overcoming this irrational. Well, maybe it's a rational fear. And maybe that's why so many people have it is that somehow by encouraging the agency and the optionality of the individual and by allowing individuals, this is, here's this, the game of words again, to act in their own selfish ends actually produces global coordination. And this is exactly the paradox that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. He's like, well, I may, for selfish reasons, decide that I only want to prefer a local production because I want to help my neighbor because it's more convenient for me to get those goods. But as a result, society as a whole becomes stronger because the local economy actually grows in its prosperity. Mm. And so I think what this ultimately comes down to is we need, okay, we need better mental models, better counterexamples to the idea that when you allow people to act according to their free will, that you know, somehow some predatory behavior is what results. That is essentially, that is the core fear of the statist. That is the core fear of the Marxist. And we know that empirically it's not true. And I think what we can start to do is seed examples, right? When people have economic freedom, I don't know if you've just seen this, but apparently the price of Bitcoin appreciated something like 1200 times in Lebanon because they're they're going through hyperinflation right now. So mm-hmm. the Bitcoin price in, in nominal terms, in terms of, of, of their currency is now 1200 times what it was before, which Hmm. is actually a really good example of, Hey, I've got this real thing, which is a barometer, a check against this fake thing. Hmm. And so they, if you happen to live in Lebanon, I think ironically, Taleb is even from Lebanon. So it's Hmm. safe if I remember correctly, you now have a very concrete example. So that's a great, that's a great place to to kind of start to wrap things together is that if you, if you lived in the country and you thought, ah, Bitcoin, they have perforce of necessity, been forced to see that this whole fiat invention is fake and people right. can move the decimal point anytime that they want. And, you know, here's this thing, which now my, in proportion to the fact that my currency has been debased, here's this thing that like, you know, has exploded in value. Mm. And it's more like a constant barometer in spite of the different terms that central planners and central bankers try and throw at me. I can, I can grab onto this buoy that is, is, is relatively more constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, and this word has been used in many senses uh, uh, in the sea of volatility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, that's a great example. And we touched on this in an earlier episode, right? That the nature of rationality, right? It involves ratios, right? So you, 
you have numerators and denominators and the problem with fiat and elastic words, fiat currency and elastic words in general is that you have denominators that fluctuate, right? So it, it actually causes a breakdown in rationality. And what are we trying to do with, you know, pursuing the work of soul and getting our terms very precise and Mises, right? Mises is very terminologically precise and everything that he writes, all the Austrian economists. And you're trying to get a very sharp, hard, precise denominator. Well, that's the same thing Bitcoin is, right? It's a fixed denominator, 21 million. You can't change it. So when the, you know, the proverbial tide goes out and you see who's swimming naked, well, Bitcoin's going to tell you the truth, right? And that's probably what you're seeing in Lebanon today is the currency's going to zero. Well, what does that mean? What's the equivalent of that? Bitcoin's going to go to infinity in terms of the Lebanese currency. And help me now. I want to ask kind of a hard question for maximalists, and I guess I do consider myself one. I don't feel any antipathy or type two discrimination towards other cryptocurrencies. I just I think that scarcity happens once. I think to some extent. Number one, number mm-hmm. two, that the simplest design is the one that tends to endure most over time. Mm-hmm. The Lindy effect, and you know, I've talked about in, in other episodes kind of what the flaws are with Ethereum in a nutshell. In addition to pre-mine, it's it, it just a proliferation of complexity. Mm. But here's my question for you is that how do we avoid that from becoming a religion and a new hangover? Because, you know, it's very seductive. Like, I, do I want hyper Bitcoinization? Sure. Like, mm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. well, no, here's a really interesting thought. Like, uh, maybe I went to bed in Lebanon. I was like, you know, dreaming about the Bitcoin increasing 1200 times in price, <laughs> but when I realize what that actually means, I worry about that a lot too. It's like, okay, you know, what, what if a Bitcoin is, is worth a million dollars, but a hamburger costs a hundred thousand dollars. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So there are two paradoxes to tease out there is like, how do we make sure that this conviction about, uh, about reality or our models for reality doesn't become a religion because then we're just, you know, recipients of another hangover and that doesn't help anybody. And it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling behavior where you believe in Bitcoin, no matter what, but you know, the empirical evidence be damned. Well, well, I guess my first question would be, what is your definition of religion? <laughs> Which is a very hard, hard one to define. Yeah, I can do, let me do that better. Religion is not a good metaphor, uh, but a belief that can't be questioned. Mm. Right. So in other words, so dogmatism. So in other words, let's take an example, like the stock to flow model. When stock to flow fell apart, like, mm-hmm. you know, plan B, who we had on the show, I think, right. Who's brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, and he's still there and, and he's like, you know, providing good technical analysis and all that. Like it was really hard for people to accept that stock to flow didn't hold. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know if there's still a world in which stock to flow holds or mm-hmm. the, I'm talking about as a model, not the fact yeah. of stock to flow. Yeah. So it's in other words, how do we be, how do we avoid becoming what we're criticizing, which is just immunity to evidence? Well, I, you know, I, I don't completely know the answer, but for me, it's always celebrating this necessary process of open inquiry, right? That you always have to be asking questions and checking your model against reality. Like you're never going to find the final model. Mm-hmm. So maybe the realization of that epistemology or knowledge is necessarily finite and provisional always, right? You're never going to find the theory of everything in my estimation. Like, could I be wrong? Sure. But it seems like, you know, what we know already fills many, many thousands of volumes. You know, you could look at the internet archive or the libraries of Alexandria or whatever your, your proxy for that is. But what we don't know is like infinitely larger and will probably always necessarily be so. Um, Mm. We talk about this a little bit on, in the series I did on the book, Leela, 
which is a book written by Robert Persig. And he made, he had a pretty shattering realization in that book that every new, um, basically every new question you asked in science, if you found an answer for it, you know, all the answer and quotation marks, because the answer is sort of provisional as well, right? It's the, the hypothesis that was not yet disproven that that, um, answer basically generated exponentially more questions. So like, it didn't matter how many questions you answered, uh, through the scientific methodology, like you were the, the number of questions was going to expand nonlinear to the number of answers you could ever discover. So it's just like, if you just, Hmm. and that's kind of a lot to say in one sentence and something to reflect on for a while. But my takeaway is that knowledge is just a tool, right? It's the most important thing we've got for dealing with this complex reality, but it can never contain the complex reality, which I always Mm. distill all the way down to the map is not the territory, right? We're dealing with a territory that we can never fully understand, but we can understand it more comprehensively, more precisely, uh, you know, with, you know, pursuing these methods, right? Using sharp, precise language, using things like a fixed uh, fixed supply money. That's a really good one. Um, English common law, right? Law that is discovered over time rather than is legislated from on high. These seem to be more in line with the, the, the true nature of how humans interact versus just one guy that got into power and like tried to impress his opinion upon the legal process. Like all of these, these things seem, seem useful to that end. I think you answered the question that we we've, we've uh, been trying to answer throughout this podcast. And it's something inquiry is even higher than knowledge. And what you said Mm -hmm. was that what we need to support is the process to free inquiry, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess this leads to all kinds of paradoxes, because one of the great points of a freedom advocate, and many people argue he was imperfect relative to Rothbard or Mises. One of the great points of the freedom advocate Hayek was that not all order even comes from rationality. So inquiry mm-hmm. is even higher than rationality, right? But he mm-hmm. he understood the concept of the fatal conceit and he understood the extended order and the generation of the extended order through non-rational means like morality through kind of a rational exploration. Okay. Mm-hmm. But what you really helped me see there, and, and you 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 gave a literal example of the splitting of the atom. Like that's what that means. There's no end to the splitting of the atom. So, mm-hmm. you know, inquiry has no end. But what you help me to see is that what Sol and Mises are asking us to do in different ways is to proceed by inquiry and to take apart and dissect the things that are in front of us until you can't, by the way. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is another point that, and I'm sure Persig would agree that nature can't be dissected. Right. And we've right. said the same about, about complex systems. There's mm-hmm. no just easy way to tease it apart and make sense mm-hmm. out of it. But even that understanding is attained through inquiry. And mm-hmm. the answer to my question about how we prevent maximalism from becoming toxic is that we support inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. And so we should ask these, you know, and there's inquiry and there's inquiry, right? So some inquiry is pointless. Like I'm not really interested in, in sticking my way in <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, and there are certain questions that I'm not willing to ask. And, but that is a function of my own perspective and my yeah. own blindness. And uh, I think that that is so, so, okay, that's a really interesting thing. So, and it brings me exactly to Voltaire who says, mm-hmm. To learn who rules over you, simply observe who cannot be criticized. Yeah, right. And so that means that we should look for, wow, this is like a meta framework, but it's a really interesting one. We should look for wherever the barriers to our inquiry are. Mm -hmm. And what soul is attacking, and it's very painful for you to even talk about this, and I have a great way of tying it together. 
Uh, what Sol is, is what he's treating discrimination and disparities are the sacred cows that you're not allowed to question and you're not mm-hmm. allowed to talk about, mm-hmm. which right. are, okay, disparate outcomes, emotional scars that we have as a, as a human race, and how that they may not be the result, these disparate outcomes may not, and very oftentimes demonstrably not, are not the result of discrimination at all. Mm. but the result of complex distributed factors. And you'll know, you'll know, I'm going to flip it back over to you to conclude. I'm repeating the words of someone who I believe is pretty far to the left. So you know that I have conviction that they're true. And what they said is that the world is not divided. The Muhammad Safa is is the the author. So the world is not divided by race, gender, and religion. The world is divided into wise people and fools and fools divide themselves by race, gender, and religion. Mm, wow. I've never heard that one. That one's beautiful. And I, you know, when I look at the notion of wisdom, I go straight to Socrates, right? The only thing I know is that I know nothing at all. Like that's the root of wisdom in a way is this provisional orientation or attitude towards knowledge itself that you have right. to un- have to understand that whatever you think you understand might not be what you understand given more evidence and, um, you know, thinking progress, et cetera. So you get back to this, the importance of free inquiry and to, to try and reify that to some extent, you know, that's entrepreneurship, right? They're inquiring what, what does the market want? What do I have to offer? Can I do it in a profitable way? This is the scientific method, which is like a systematic, method of questioning effectively inquiring into the nature of reality dialogue right connecting the individual logos and dialogos like these are all processes of inquiry and you know as mises said the market process is irreducible right you can't get beneath the process i think and he meant that specifically in an economics domain but i think when you expand it out and you see all these different processes of communication that everything, every action in the universe is like a signal, right? It's putting signals out, it's taking signals in and everything is kind of in this oscillating dance. I don't think you can get below that. So you have to respect, we even see this in our language, trust the process. Yeah. You know, um, I think there's an irreducible element there. You can't, you have to understand that you can't contain the process inside of knowledge and it's something that's therefore it's irreducible. And, um, yeah, maybe that is effective in keeping us from becoming dogmatic or becoming, because I think the, what's dangerous is becoming static, right. In your views or anytime Sam Harris makes this point, like the problem with religion and his view under his definition of religion is that it's, it cannot be amended, right. You cannot, you can't, change it. And so it becomes a static structure that's brittle. Um, and so, yeah, in Bitcoin, we never want to become dogmatic. We sound, it sounds silly almost because we, we sound extremely dogmatic, you know, fix the money, fix the world, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, et cetera. But beneath that is like Bitcoin itself is not necessarily static. Bitcoin is very paradoxical though. We have this perfect stasis in 21 million, you know, through social consensus, but it has this also infinite adaptability, right? It can always change. Consensus, taproot. I was just thinking about that. Like 21 million is fixed. Taproot didn't exist when Satoshi wrote Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure that the dog, the criticism 
rendered against dogmatism applies to Bitcoin because it has that adaptability built into it, right? To be dogmatic about Bitcoin, you're kind of dogmatic about the process of inquiry itself because Bitcoin represents that process, right? If if there's some change, like you said, taproot or otherwise, well, it gets it gets implemented. Um, so I have to be careful here. We're talking so much about being, being careful on terminology. The term toxicity, right? We sort of lump this together. And I think there's maybe two different pieces to it. One is um, defending the consensus, right? From from social attack vectors. You know, you could read the the uh, the block wars of 2017 for a demonstration on or that. Or run a node, you know, like run or, your own node. Like you run, run your own node, consensus, right. like run your own node, yeah. Yeah, or, and then there's this other aspect of it, which I was initially had more emphasis on myself and my own perspective was just like this cultural behavior, right? Have fun staying poor and uh, all these silly tropes that get thrown around on social media. Like that was culturally unattractive to me, but Mm -hmm. I think there's also a a very significant utility to toxicity and kind of calling out bullshit and defending the consensus. And it's like a cultural immune system. So, you know, there's a learning curve there for, for me as well, having gone into, you think you have uh, something figured out and then captured under a term, encapsulated in a term, but then as you spend more time with it and through experience, you can come to see that there might be more aspects to that term than you originally considered. And being a complex and distributed system, there's no single linguistic characteristic or category that we can apply to Bitcoin. Like that's mm-hmm. one of the meta points of this whole episode that we've done yeah. is that, you know, you, so does Bitcoin have constancy? Yes. Does it have dynamism? Yes. Does it, does it have some aspects of central coordination? Yes. Is it distributed? Yes. You know, there's all these things which are paradoxical and you know what, this really comes down to actually, this is a great place to, to start to end. Uh, it, it first highlights the insufficiency of language. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is a point that Hayek made. This is a point that Mises made. And what is that insufficiency <clears throat> process defeats structure every single time. Yeah. And the central planner's mind tries to impose structure through structure, whereas the market is a process and we don't know which outcomes are it, the market necessarily is going to produce. But we know, again, this is going way back to our early work. We know from the flock of starlings, they know all these birds, there's no central commander that's telling the birds where to fly, but we get Mm -hmm. this beautiful murmuration, this beautiful coordination, because the fundamental constituents of that network are, and the links, you know, one bird, maybe it's just calculating based on your neighbors. You don't know anything about the whole murmuration are fundamentally sound. And so there's a lot of interesting thoughts here. One is that everything disappears on inquiry. And I think a great question in the spirit of soul that we can all ask ourselves is what would it take me to change my mind? Mm-hmm. And in certain discussions, like I even catch myself saying, well, nothing would change my mind that socialism is a good idea, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Well, but then I say, well, I would need empirical evidence of, mm-hmm. you know, a successful socialist republic. Let me say mm-hmm. that. And right. this is what Seoul is attacking is that the, the prevailing vision has caused an immunity to inquiry and an immunity to hypothesis testing, and which is why we get this dodge that of like, oh, that wasn't real socialism every single time. So there's something in there about the power of inquiry. The power of inquiry being able to defeat the very ideas that it generates, mm-hmm. and then us being able to ask ourselves heuristic questions to see if we're seeing reality clearly. One of which mm-hmm. is, what would it take for me to change my mind? And if the answer to that is nothing, then you might be a dogmatist. Or you have some religious intuition, which is allowed, you know, which is perfectly acceptable. In you do not have to be able to rationally justify all mm-hmm. the behavior and decisions that you make. That's the whole point of process versus structure. 
And then Soul's three questions, which are, you know, when we're faced with any social program or any vision, is this change compared to what, compared to what will this change be good, quote unquote, good or bad at what cost? And is there any evidence for that? Right. So that is a great way of coming to this culmination that soul and Mises are all about inquiry and they are helping us. They're giving us new tools to make inquiry into reality and watch this to kind of to punch through these hollow models that are offered to us as reality by central Mm. planners. That's what this book is all about. And this social vision is just an inherited accepted thing uh, you know, the social vision that people are depraved because they're deprived. Another way of speaking about the invincible fallacy. The social vision is just kind of baked into the pie and it's baked into our language. It's baked into what the bills are called. I mean, the bills in Congress, it's mm-hmm. baked into how people frame things and the amygdala hijacks that they, they uh, attempt, uh, whether they know it or not, to, mm-hmm. to perpetrate on others. And so um, they're saying, hey, precision in terms and depth of inquiry is a way to see through these fake structures into what's actually happening. And I think what we've said about complex systems without saying it is that no amount of words will ever capture a complex system. And Satoshi understood that very well, that words, you know, we, that was the inscription of the previous chapter, mm-hmm. uh, that, that words are, are cheap. Yeah. And if we can have a consensus mechanism, you know, which is written in code, man, I'm not even sure I understood what I just said, but there's, I mean, <laughs> no, this it's... is the infinity of ideas. And, and this is, the, this is the, the, the infinity of the complexity of the world. And we can, I think what Mises is saying and Sol is saying about the market process is that it cannot be predicted. It has to be observed. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, wonderfully, brilliantly said. Um, if we're talking about truth as in the nature of ultimate reality, right? I think that's just beyond words. It's necessarily beyond words, beyond, it cannot be symbolized even, right? It's just something that is, again, if knowledge is just a limited tool, you cannot make, the map cannot be the territory. If the map was the territory, then the map has, there's no use to it, right? It has every detail of the territory. So therefore it's no longer a map. Um, you can like, your pocket. Yeah, exactly. So language is like giving us a data compression means of data compression for dealing with complex fluid reality. And therefore process always defeats structure, as you said, right? Because you can always redraw a new map based on your circumstances, right? There's a different map that's useful when you're at the equator versus at the North pole, right? You're going to need polar coordinates versus uh, more longitudinal, right? It's, it's, it's dependent on circumstances. And so I think reality is kind of structurally liquid in a way, right? It's what the quotes that come to mind here is, uh, the river cuts the stone, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. Uh, no man ever steps into the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same man, you know, like there's this liquid characteristic to, infinite fluid complex reality. And we're just trying to like map it as we go. And so that realization, I think helps you pierce the illusions that a lot of these socialists and statists are putting forth. Like here's the grand plan. Here's the final totalitarian vision, right? We've totalized all the knowledge and here's the plan. Um, it's just bullshit. It doesn't matter what anyone says. There's no words. There's no sequence of words you can put together and be like, this is the final thing it's, it's never going, that map will never be the territory, I guess. 
And the universe rewards, in some sense, epistemic humility, because it takes epistemic humility to admit that not only the central plan was wrong, but that this black swan even exists. Right. And one of the scary things about the, the prevailing cultural vision that Sowell attacked in this chapter is we tend to blind ourselves, deliberately pull the wool over our own eyes in spite of evidence to the contrary. And part of that, you know, is, is this play between the rational and the emotional dimensions of human beings. And I like to say that reason is a raft on the sea of emotion. Mm. So for all of our pride in rationality, and I think inquiry is stronger than rationality or is a higher and more general process, we are still subject to this amygdala hijack. So mm -hmm. I guess all we can say is here we are on the process of learning together. Bitcoin, soul, Mises are some of the threads of uh, glimmers of the future that are most promising. Mm -hmm. And I think we tried to, to share that with the audience. And I guess the last paradox I'll introduce is... It isn't just that process, the market process. The market is not a place or a thing. It is a process by mm -hmm. which this, by which Cadillacy takes place. The prices, mm -hmm. the exchange reaches are computed, not by thinking, not by saying, but by actually putting skin in the game and saying, this mm -hmm. is the thing that I need. And this is the thing I'm willing, willing to give up to, to get that mm -hmm. thing. And this is the thing that socialist bureaucracies and central planning can never do because it's only an internal transfer of good. There's no sacrifice. And so all of that to say, it isn't just that process beats structure. It's that in our search for structure, the truth is actually that these complex processes produce more structure than structure for structured sake could ever mm. produce. Mm. Because that's the point. There's no planlessness of capitalism. They, I think uh, Mises calls this market anarchy. Is mm -hmm. is the and you, and you see it. You and I see this every day on Twitter. Like, oh, you know, uh, capitalism is causing chaos and extractive destruction mm -hmm. of the resources of the planet. That's a separate debate that we can have. But the thing that people really seem to be afraid of. And the fear that sadists really seem to prey on is that if we don't do something, things left to their own device, individuals left to their own device, that's it. Yeah. Individuals left to their own device will somehow produce chaotic or destructive outcomes. And it's very much like the state playing on, you know, what was inculcated into all of us through our parents, which is that, you know, mm -hmm. a you know, that is another argument we can have, you know, should babies be left, should children be left to their own devices to some mm -hmm. extent? Yes. To another extent, no. And this is, you know, Steiner theory and all that. Uh, but I guess all of that to say that there is a tremendous interplay between structure and process. And the idea I'd really like to spread to the rest of the world through this series is that there are all kinds of structures, beneficial structures, global communication, a network that's only as good as its link, that can only be possible if individuals are empowered and protected. Mm. And with those straw links of law, language, and money, we can actually get the organization, the organized planet that we want. And it's very scary. It's almost like letting go of the reins. Mm -hmm. But you take responsibility for yourself. And Sol actually makes that point in this chapter is that that is one of the most terrifying ideals to people is that they would have to take responsibility for themselves. <laughs> but this, you know, maybe that's what we're terrified of is, is this, and I say terrified very deliberately, is that you should see the things I, I you know, I'm always talking about capitalism and socialism and order. And you should see the things that people respond to me with. They're terrified of yeah. capitalism. They're terrified yeah. of markets. And that is in some sense, a terror of the individual and the optionality of the individual. So all these things that we think are chaos producing optionality, volatility, a process are actually mm -hmm. order producing and the order that we want and the global coordination that we want is going to require that these links of law and language and money have so much integrity that we can actually communicate at a distance. Yeah. Beautifully said. I think it's a great place to end it. Um, Anish, could you please tell my audience where they can find you on the internet in case they don't know where you're at? 
Sure. You can find me on Twitter, A-K-A-R-V-E and A-K-A-R-V-E.com is uh, my personal website. And I'm looking forward to hosting that website on a, a private network. So uh, I guess not to diverge too much, but the internet domain system is kind of like, you know, centralized to some extent. And yeah. maybe we can start to, to decentralize identity and uh, we'll need technologies like Bitcoin to do that. Excellent. Awesome. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thank you so much.